Hi, and welcome to this special edition of the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. In these episodes, we get to hear from everyday people who've done extraordinary things and how sometimes that can be hard on them and their families, which is what this walk is really about. So get ready to hear some amazing stuff from amazing people. Well, welcome to another Hot Debrief podcast. Today we're in Wagga on the Heart to Heart Walk and we're joined by one of our walkers, Sergeant Greg Corrin, APM, from the Australian Federal Police. G'day, Greg. G'day, Matt. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here in Wagga and absolutely fantastic to be inside Dolly the uh, caravan. Yeah, she keeps me warm at night. (laughs) It's sensational. So, Greg... Your backstory to becoming part of the walk is obviously your association with people that have been in the planning committee and and all of that sort of stuff. But what I'd like to understand is your journey into the Australian Federal Police. So could you just tell us a little bit about before that even happened, right back to where did you grow up? Sure. Well, I was I was born in Penrith in Western Sydney and I grew up in the lower Blue Mountains. Uh, like Dolly, I'm a 60s boy and I... Went to boarding school in Sydney and whilst I was at boarding school, I went all right at uh, the cadets, the army cadets. Oh, yeah. I wasn't very academic. I was probably more sporty and enjoyed a lot of the extracurricular activities. I didn't get a great score in my HSC. Was looking, I was working at a place called Australia's Wonderland, which we call oh, Wally World. I remember it. Yeah. And I started a building apprenticeship at Mount Druitt Tech. Didn't last too long on that. And then uh, I thought policing might be a good career. I, I filled out the application for the New South Wales Police and I also filled out an application to go to Duntroon. And I was accepted into Duntroon, a Royal Military College, before getting um, sending off the New South Wales Police. So off I trundled to RMC Duntroon in 1986 to do the straight 18-month officer course. I was about six months in doing that course and in the soldier newspaper was an ad for the AFP and it had a picture of these three people holding up a, a police badge saying the career to investigate. Yeah, right. And at that time I was probably earning about $12,000 a year, I think, <laughs> as, a, as a staff cadet at Duntroon. And in the ad, it said, on average, AFP members would earn around about $30,000 a year after a couple of years yep. in service. And I thought, oh, that's more than double the yeah. money I'm getting here in the army. And so I rolled into the recruiting office in December of 86. The director of recruiting at that time was a fellow called Colin Khan, Brigadier Colin Khan, a former military man himself who was recruiting and had a chat with with the good sir and then later in I went back to Duntroon in the beginning of 87. He didn't try and talk you into staying in the military line? He did. He said, don't burn your bridges, son. Right. Don't burn your bridges. And I took that advice and then I was going well at Duntroon. I had good leadership scores, et cetera, and I, I just I got hooked up on the AFP, the policing side of things. Uh, I ended up exiting Duntroon by about April and I went back to Wally World and continued right. to work at Wally World. At the same time, the application for the AFP was going well and I ended up entering the police college in September 1987. Did it run in the family, policing? 
What, I'm just wondering what drew drew you over there. No, it didn't. And I think uh, no other family members that I know of have been in the police. My grandfather on my mum's side was was in the army. And right. Again, maybe that was why I went down that road. And I think I actually wanted to be a PE teacher and that was something that I would have liked to have explored. But anyway, it never happened that way and hmm. policing became it and off to the police college in Brisbane Avenue, Canberra, I went. Yeah, right. So with uh, one of the things that I did want to ask you was that path to the AFP rather than New South Wales Police. And was that just a timing thing that they didn't get back to you in time or? Yeah, I think it was A, just the application and having met Colin Khan and when I looked and having been at Duntroon, I, I could go and see the police college and, yeah, and become right. more familiar. So as a young fella, I could become more familiar with what might be in store for me. And so I sort of left the New South Wales thing alone yep. and didn't progress that and, and pro- progressed the AFP and thought, oh, yeah. I'll give this a crack for a while. Don't know what it'll be like, but yeah. we'll just see what happens. It's funny. Uh, I was wondering whether or not it was the uh, Penrith environment that turned you off to New South Wales in case you ended up back there because that, that was my first station, Penrith, and uh, – yeah, it was a wild, uh, wild town to, oh, I, to police. I love the river and the mountains and everything that comes with that Penrith Valley region. It's yeah. sensational and, and I do – I spent a bit of time doing a lot of uh, bushwalks around around uh, the lower mountains and and even up Katoomba Way itself. Yeah. So. yeah, we've trodden a lot of the same trails, I think. Yeah, I, I ended up finishing my silver Duke of Edinburgh in between leaving Duntroon and starting at the cop shop Really? Um, I, I had one final trek to do and I did it down Naraneck at Katoomba there, yeah, and right. down onto the Coxes River. It was around the same time as a whole bunch of Scots College boys got had to be rescued <laughs> for, um, crossing that river. Yeah, the Duke of Edinburgh stuff was a pretty uh, regular source of business for the rescue squad up in the mountains, actually. I could imagine. Yeah, it was. So tell me about the academy. So I, I obviously know about the New South Wales Police Academy. What was the AFP one like? So the Australian Federal Police College, it's in Brisbane Avenue. It's an old hostel. It uh, we it has a lot of walls that could probably talk. Yeah. There's a thing called the Barton Shuffle. Uh, back then in the late 80s, you had communal bathrooms and uh, showers. You had your own independent little room. I think the, the course maybe was 12, 13, 14 weeks. I can't recall. started in September and we graduated in December. Yeah. And it covered off on the usual stuff. We, like most policing courses, you build a strong bond and um, mateship with the with the course. Yeah. It was 25 in my program and we had five females and we also had a parallel course of the same number that would run concurrent. And the AFP at that ah, time okay. was recruiting heavily. So every four to six weeks, a new recruit course would begin. So there was quite a lot going on. The commissioner at the time was a fellow called Ron Gray, who was a former military man himself, and he retired from the AFP in December 1987. Yeah, right. Actually, I think he did the report into the rescue arrangements in New South Wales after he left, I okay. think. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's – yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. 
So with, with the numbers that you're talking about through the academy, like if they were heavily recruiting, what sort of numbers per class are you talking about? Because I know when New South Wales heavily recruits, they talk like a thousand. <laughs> yeah. No, it's only small. It's only 25. Yeah, and, okay. and to this day, the numbers are still quite small. But obviously 50 recruits training at one time yep. uh, in the college. But then you'd also have other courses that were further along. So the college... Oh, so it's all staggered. Sort it's of, staggered. Yeah, yeah. And yep. you might have a couple of hundred in training, in yeah, recruit right. training at any given time. And then it's uh, as the dates roll by, yeah, people right graduate on. and then it just keeps going. So that was pretty heavy through to the early 90s and then it really just dried up, I think. Either yeah. they didn't recruit or there was no funding or yeah, right a fair gap. How, how many people are actually in the AFP as a comparative thing to New South Wales, which sits, I think, at around the 17,000 mark, I think? Yeah, it's over 7,000 now. Right. Um, but that includes uh, the unsworn members that support oh, yeah. The, yeah. all the policing operations and the protective service officer side of yeah. the house. So you have police officers, you have pre- protective service officers and yeah. – and uh, an unsworn personnel. Yeah, okay. And the protective services side of things is literally just looking after security at the facilities in the ACT. Yeah, and and and, and around Australia, and around Australia, they've had yeah. some offshore stuff as well. So yep. yeah, it's that government guarding yeah, service. Right. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So where where did you actually first get stationed out of the academy? So I graduated December '87 and then posted to Sydney. And yeah, back then you had a few options. You Sydney, Melbourne or Canberra into ACT policing yep. for uniform work. I can't recall actually having had much of a preference and I thought, well, being from Sydney, I thought I'll, I'll head, head back there. Yeah, right. And you do a rotation through Sydney Airport, you attach yourself to a general squad, you do drug squad, you do some major crime, you sort of move around these different teams and consolidate your training with what back then was called a stage four program, uh, which just covered off on all the different types of offences that the AFP would be investigating yeah, back right. then. And so I did all that through into 1988. And then I sort of got it, I managed to get myself on a course in 1989 for close personal protection. So that was one of the functions that the AFP had in Sydney. Uh, was the close protection of the Israeli and Turkish consul generals in in Sydney, and in and in Melbourne as well, and Canberra. Just those ambassadors. specific ones, was it? Those two specific ones at that point, and um, full time protection teams for those diplomats. And then, I think in 1990, we had the first Gulf War, and as a result of that, an operation kicked off, requiring the AFP to provide further close personal protection services to at least another five diplomats right. uh, across the different countries. It's pretty early in your career to get into such a specialised role. Like f- f- from my experience in New South Wales, you would never get a look in at two years service to go into CPP sort of roles. Yeah, so. I think being Sydney, uh, it was. It was a, an area, there was a fellow called Brian Bradley who was a senior sergeant in charge of it and it was just a specialised area. I think if you had the right attributes and mm. back, I always say if you could shoot straight and, and drive a car okay, then <laughs> you'd give it, a, you'd give a, it look a, a good look. Yeah, right. So for me, I, I enjoyed the nature of the work. It was long hours, but it, it certainly had um, 
some good excitement to it. Yeah, yeah, I don't doubt it. Had some it. absolute boredom to it as well, yeah. but, but you take the good that's, with the bad. That's policing, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with, like, in that world of close personal protection, what does that look like? It looks like many things. Um, you're always looking for what doesn't fit and you're, you're so, so you're talking about traveling in a team with your person your VIP yep yeah right so you you travel with them anytime they're outside of a secured location so outside of their home or their office they're generally secure locations and there yep. may well be some static security in place at those at those locations so anytime they're outside of that then they would have a CPP team with that attached to them yeah right what, what we'd call a protectee and so it means you travel it means you go to the movies it means you yeah, right. go to shopping centers it means you might sit outside a house uh, for uh, whilst they're in having family dinners or barbecues so it has a, a wide variety of operating environments and you need the ability to adjust and adapt to those different operating environments yeah do you get much warning about where you're going or do you just have to work it out on the fly? You do try to work off the program and build and do what we would call an advanced survey of venues that you may visit in the in the coming week. Yeah, right. But quite often it may be on the fly and that's good as well because if they don't know or we don't know that they're going to a particular place, then no one else the, can know, then the right. crooks won't yeah, know right. or, or whoever, whoever might be their threat. Yeah. Um, so it, it was an interesting time there in the early 90s. We had a, a high-level visit come into Australia, um, a judge who before arriving in Australia had 17 attempts on his life um, and he came out and gave some evidence to the National Crime Authority. That was I remember that job specifically and uh, it was a very high threat, high risk. Yeah. We couldn't put, We couldn't put him in an aircraft but for that very purpose right. that um, he was t driven by road everywhere and uh, sadly years later they, they got him, they blew him up and some of his bodyguards. Wow. <laughs> I can't imagine the stress you'd be under with that one coming in. It's like, wow. I, yeah, I, I, can't ima I can't imagine what it would be like knowing there's any likelihood that's actually going to happen <laughs> yeah. on, on your watch. Yeah, it's a different environment. Yeah. So, so the CPP role that you did is was a full-time gig? It was a full-time gig. Yeah. Uh, and then I was enjoying the work and I thought, well, the better place to do this is in Canberra where we have more of the teams, the, the full-time teams that look after the Prime Minister and other ambassadors. Yeah. And I thought, oh, if I could get myself to Canberra, then that would be really something I'd, yeah, I'd yeah. like to do. Yeah. And I'd put in expressions of interest a couple of times to get there and – Never got any legs. Getting out of Sydney was difficult. And then I finally managed uh, in 92, I had put a, just to transfer anywhere to Canberra. Just, I'd got married in 91 to D and we pretty much decided that we didn't want to remain in Sydney. We wanted somewhere a little less busy, yeah. less crime, less people to bring a family up. Yep. And so in 92, I just said, look, I'll take any job in Canberra. Right. And I managed to jag a, a job, in, uh, you know, a, sort of a bit of a desk job, but it was a really interesting job and it was to deal with deployments across the AFP. So I transferred 
from Sydney to Canberra in March 92 and work, work this eight to four, Monday to Friday wow. gig. You know, Dif- it was quite different to CPP completely world. different. <laughs> and I walked in there day one and the boss said to me, look, I know you want to get out and do more operational stuff, but I need you to give me 18 months. Right. Oh, 18 months driving a desk. Yeah. God, man. Um, and his name was Fred. you're only five years in at this point. Yeah. Keen as mustard, no doubt. Yeah. And I went, yeah, no worries, sir. I'll, I'll, I'll do the 18 months. And within six weeks, so later in 92, the Iranian embassies, uh, many Iranian embassies around the world were attacked yeah. in a coordinated uh, attack uh, internal. And as a result, I was plucked out of this desk, <laughs> desk, desk driving job to go and protect the Iranian ambassador. Okay. Um, and it was beyond mine or my boss's decision. It was came from the deputy. No, get this Corin bloke out and he's, he's on the Iranian ambassador. So I went and did that for uh, six to eight weeks. And at the end of it, the boss of protection, the superintendent, said, oh, Greg, would you like a job? You can have a full-time job right. in the CPP here in Canberra. And that was exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I went, oh, I really would. His name was Roger. But I said I gave my word to yeah. Fred, my other boss, and probably Fred being probably one of the best bosses I've ever had. And I said, no, nah, look, I've, I've given my word to Fred that yeah. I'd do 18 months. So I went back to the desk driving Did job. Did you really? And... And it was in that time that I went, man, you've you've got to get a better handle on what it is the AFP provides. And I went, I need to get out and do some, I'll call it real policing. Yeah. But it, yeah. it's community policing. Get that uh, community engagement, get the... the uniform sort of... Blood role. on your hands. Yeah. And so I managed to, well, it was pretty handy. I worked in deployment. So, and there was a, a, a lady at... Belconnen Station in Canberra that was looking to have more of a desk job. Okay. So the two of us managed to do a swap. Oh, nice. In 1993 and, and I I kicked over into Belconnen Station general duties. Is that the um, first time you wore a uniform other than in the academy? No, we wore a uniform in Sydney. So doing okay. the policing at the airport. Um, oh, So of you course. did a bit Sorry, of community yeah. policing yeah, but, yeah. you know, it was only minor, so it's just yeah. drunks and, you know, a little bit of traffic and yeah. not, a, not a great deal. So off to off to Belconnen Station I went in yeah. um, in '93. Day one was a bit of a shock. I had done all the the procedure, local procedures and all that sort of thing. And day one I got a death of a 79 year old female, and I had a senior Connie as a buddy, um, Bob, and uh, we went to this death of the 79 who she was visiting from the UK, and uh. like any sudden death. Uh, if a doctor's not going to sign it off, yeah. then an autopsy needs to take place. So uh, we ended up at the morgue in in uh, Kingston, and on the same day, there'd been a death uh, on the south side of a eight week old baby boy uh. Uh, from cot death. And I sat through both both post mortems of the seventy nine year old and the eight week old boy on day one of my day one general duties policing, and I just went. <laughs> Fuck me! What am I in for here? I don't doubt it. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was it was a pretty horrific first day. Yeah. And you know, just seeing uh, such a small baby have a yeah. post go through a post mortem is is terrible. But things improved from there. 
<laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> let's hope they did. Yeah. How long did you spend at Belconnen? Uh, it was through to uh, 1995. I went off to to Cyprus for a six-month gig with United Nations. So 94, I sort of joined the part-time search and rescue squad, did yeah, the training right. there. And then 95, I did a six-month deployment to Cyprus as part of the United Nations forces in Cyprus. That was for six months and then managed to travel a little bit after that. Uh, Dee and I still had no kids and so we took a bit of a two-month break visiting some of her relays overseas and uh, her brother, I think, got married in Canada and then uh, came back in 96 and I ended up at City Station after after the Cyprus tour. Okay. And I ended up in City Beats, what we call City Beats. It's so you've, you've stepped out of like a general duties type policing role, done an overseas deployment and then just come back into another duties position. Yep. Right. So the City Beats is like your um, pubs and clubs in the city. Yeah, um, Dealing okay. with the drunks. The, yeah, the drugos you know, and drunks. and Everything. Yep. You know, endless night shifts. Yeah. You know, I did yep. that for a good 18 months um, and – it obviously endless night shifts and, and yeah. that lifestyle is, is not, not healthy for the body. So, you know, I, I learned a lot there and got a lot of internal investigation complaints because <laughs> back back then <laughs> I'm we, assuming you weren't investigating them. <laughs> I wasn't investigating them. We had a, a pretty zealous sergeant at the time and the bosses want us wanted us to apply that thing called the broken window principle, which meant was applied being used in New York at the time, I think, and that was Basically, lock anyone up that is doing minor crime. Yeah. So if someone's taking a leak in the street, yeah. Or you know those sorts of things, you lock them up. Yeah. And and I got it because so many times I tried to send people on their way, go home, mate, get in a taxi, get someone responsible yeah. that could look after someone who, who, his night or her night was over, and if someone else could deal with it, then that's less policing resources, but. We ended up, I think one night we locked up like 22 people oh. as, a, as, a, as a beat team. And a lot of them, you know, you just get these complaints yeah. as a result of you being pretty pretty harsh. Yeah. Um, but it, it sort of worked because it's, I learned a couple of times there I'd, I'd give a bloke a chance and go, mate, go home. I don't want to see you again. And then two hours later you've got a serious assault an ABH or something like that yeah. because there's been a, a glassing or – and when you get to the job, you go, That's the guy. it's this guy that yeah. I let let run earlier. And, yeah. and you kick yourself because you go, man, I should have just followed my nose and done yeah. something with him in the first place rather than give him a chance. Because yeah. I, I think policing is about educating people. Uh, whilst we talk about enforcement and control and all that sort of thing, I still think it's a great opportunity to educate someone to mm. make a better choice and – if you can do that, and that still works, mm. um, but yeah, on those occasions it didn't always work. Yeah. So after the beat squad stuff, I went. Oh, I'll have a, a again. My Fred, my my boss, um, had picked up an area in intelligence, what we call intelligence yep. services in ACT policing. So still a community policing intelligence role. I'd picked up. Uh, I'd become. Uh, in the special operations team as part-time. So I'm doing part-time rescue. I'm doing part-time special operations team, which is the police tactical group of the AFP at that time. And both of those areas had a lot of training. And so I went, 
going into Intel, again, it's still uh, seven yeah. days a week. Give you that it, flexibility. It gave me more chance to go out and do my vertical rescue training or my swift water rescue or my yeah. um, helicopter insertion and stuff. Any of the tactical, any of the rescue, uh, there was probably at least 12 weeks a year easy of training in both those disciplines. So 97, uh, doing the Intel stuff was that was pretty cruisy. Yep. You'd get, you know, a crime stopper call and someone would go, oh, there's some bloke dealing out of this house. Yeah, yeah. So you'd work it up a little bit or someone would say, oh, we think this house is growing cannabis. Yeah. So you might do some of the initial checks with the electricity company to see what the electricity consumption's like. Go, yeah, there's something in this before you might punch it out to a detective As team. A job. yeah, right. And to go, yeah, there is some substance to it just by doing some basic checks. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that was sort of... Uh, a new area. We also did the photo boards for um, all the, the identity parades for oh, offenders. Yeah. When yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You had to help. So getting all the watch house photos and yeah. collating all that sort of stuff. And at the same time, having a, a lot of fun with call outs for, for SOT or call outs for rescue. Yeah. Uh, that went through to 98. I remember doing a uh, aircraft assault course in 98 with New South Wales Police. Yeah, right. Um, up in Sydney involving multiple police tactical groups from across the country in, in readiness for the Sydney Olympics. Yeah, so I was we were say, starting that was to all work up stuff time, up. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And that was into 98. And then 99, uh, I was still working this Intel space, still doing search and rescue, still doing special operations team. And then the opportunity came up for Australia to take a lead role in the popular consultation of the people of East Timor. Yeah, right. And so there was a thing called the 5th of May Agreement that John Howard managed to get uh, the president of Indonesia to sign off um, on to create a UN-sanctioned uh, mission in East Timor to allow the East Timorese to vote to either accept or reject autonomy with Indonesia. So a expression of interest was put out quite quickly for... A number of, we needed, I think we sent 50 or 52, I can't recall, uh, as part of the first detachment as for the United Nations assistance mission to East Timor. Yeah, right. With your skill sets, I'm assuming that you would have been um, pretty uniquely diversified in that sense that you've got tactical operations, you've got that that hands-on practicality of rescue operations as well. is it, Was that unusual within, like how many people were actually in search and rescue and the, and the SOT? Yeah, generally you chose one or the other. Uh, there were, I would have said, maybe half a dozen of us that were both rescue and special operations. Yeah. Uh, so it did cross over and it sort of really depended upon where you might have been based as well as to how much time you could get away. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's the boss's worst nightmare to have you tied yep. up with two jobs that are you're getting called out from. it got heaps of training load. So your your availability for your actual official position is going to be pretty tight. Yeah, that, And that's why Fred was my best boss. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he gave me that time. Um, so, yeah. yes. I, I did a very similar thing because I ended up moving to single unit stations that weren't on the main roster, so to speak, with the, that commitment of that 24-hour staffing. And, yeah, it gave me the flexibility to go and do rescue part-time before I went full-time and, uh, yeah, for the same reasons, yeah. 
yeah, and it, it's just big boys having an adventure, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's about right. <laughs> getting out there. Yeah. So, so yeah, so Timor. Yeah, so Timor came up, and there were only four of us out of the special operations team that that was the limit because we couldn't afford oh, to course. deplete. Yeah. The tactical yeah, you need team to keep your capability back home. Yeah. Yeah. So we had uh, Chop. We had um, Morrow. A guy called Toss and myself were the four out of the 50. I'm going to ask about that one. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, managed to get ourselves on the plane uh, to Timor or to right. Darwin initially and uh, do the do the pre-deployment training in, in Darwin in June and then we started rolling in our teams in June 1999. Yep. Is that – you're talking about pre-deployment training within AFP or was that with the military or something? It was at the RAF base in Darwin but it was UN sort of led – Oh, okay. uh, so it was a bit of forward driving and it was just getting a handle on some of the UN processes. Who and comes over to do that? The AFP actually took on quite a bit of that right. early in the piece. So there is a, a UN peacekeeping school within defence. And ah. so they they were based at Williamtown there for a little while. Okay. Um, and they may still be. But, yeah, it was based at RAF Base Darwin. And because you have multiple na uh, nations contributing mm. to this force. It is the blending of those nations together to get ready to mm. fly in. And on these, these occasions, it was all um, Royal Australian Air Force doing the deployment of, yeah, right. of Australians into and, and other countries into, yeah. into Dili. Because there was a – I know there was a few waves of deployments into East Timor, but your one that you went on was the hostile one, wasn't it? Is it that, yeah, it yeah. was um, – it was quite hostile. We sort of – we landed uh, in the June and then the whole process was to spread out across the 13 districts. So we were spread out far and wide across the island. Uh, there was a total of 272 police in total, what we call United Nations civilian police. Yeah. And there was hundreds of um, DEOs, like a district electoral officer. And we would form this little team of having one police officer – a couple of DEOs, an interpreter and a driver. The interpreter and the driver would be local East Timorese. Yeah. And you would get deployed to location X. Yeah. And that's where you lived. That's where you sourced your food. You had to do everything independent. You had to be you oh, right. isolated. So you literally sorting it out when you got there. Yeah. On your own, yeah. So and the DEOs, who were they? Well, the one – I had uh, four DEOs and they were all from Africa. Uh, oh, sorry. I thought you were talking about another Australian agency no, or something. No, right. That, so in my little team, uh, we had two teams located in a little town called Vamasi, which is sort of on uh, between Manit uh, between Bacow and Dili in East Timor up on the, the north side of the island. Uh, we lived in a, a small – it had a, it was a, it was a house, um, but it had no running water. It had satellite TV and no running water. That's, <laughs> That's the like weird. the mobile phones, isn't yeah. it? Got yeah. no food, but they've got a mobile phone. And in yeah. that, I had there was a Swedish police officer, um, myself, and then these these uh, four DEOs. Yeah. And then the interpreter. Did they speak English? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah right. So everyone needed to speak English, and um, yeah, we went out, and the the objective was to go to your district and register the population. Yeah. So the the thing that uh, the UN had to do was register the population and then run an education campaign about the the popular consultation or the, or the vote. Yeah. And then conduct 
the ballot. So on in August. In that the, little, in that area. In that area. Yeah, okay. So it was just a, a time process, but, and there was the for and there was the against. Yeah. The UN had to be in the neutral territory. Uh, yeah. we, we're totally impartial. Yes. This yeah. is the opportunity for a, a, a nation to determine their future. Yeah. So there was 20 days of uh, registration and then there was uh, some time for education and then there was some campaigning by both sides. Yeah. And as we got closer to the closer to the date of August 30, the pro-Indonesian side of the campaign became more intimidating, became more violent, became more threatening, more harassing and it just got worse and worse and worse uh, to the point where we managed to get the, the, the ballot done, the vote done, okay. which was a, a fantastic achievement for the UN, for the that whole UNIMET force. Yeah. And the, it wasn't done without um, major drama, but the conduct of the ballot occurred and the integrity of the ballot was maintained because one of the things that the police, that the UNCIV poll had to do was also maintain security of the ballot papers. Oh, the actual, yeah, right, right. And get them on helicopters, get them to Dilly so that yeah. the actual ballot could be seen and has the integrity to go, yep, yeah, it's been done properly, it's yeah, all good. it's counted, yeah. And it was pretty much once that had happened, the result was announced on around September 4, from memory, and uh, it went... 78.5% voted to reject autonomy with Indonesia. Right. Uh, we had, I think it was close to 99% of those people that had registered to vote, voted. At, of those, 78.5% said, yep. Yeah, and that's in the midst of all of that escalating intimidation and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was clear that the future of East Timor, in the eyes of the East Timorese, was they wanted to be an independent nation. Yeah, yeah. But the... Indonesian uh, militia were not happy with this at all yeah. and there was a concerted and programmed uh, raising is the best way I can describe it, uh, of the island. We in Bacow came under automatic gunfire uh, in our office. I had a militia enter our UN office pointing M16 at me uh, I was a signals officer on this day. I think it was September 6 or 7. And uh, I was responsible for 115 people, UN personnel, uh, who were in the back our region. I just uh, got on the floor, put my hands down. Uh, he then left the office. And it was it was an interesting time in that, We'd had a, a few other incidents of being shot at in in around the first of September, a couple of days, uh, two days after the just ballot. after, yeah. And then on this particular day, when he burst in, uh, amazed that you know he didn't pull the trigger. And, so you're well, talking, you were just in a house, still. Well, it's sort of, it's sort of, it was an operations room, okay, um, which is the the headquarters for Bacow, but sort of like a. Imagine like a scout hall or something like that oh, with right. a couple of rooms off to the side. So we'd set up temporary desks and we had maps on walls and yeah, we had yeah. some sort of coordination space, yeah. for, which was the headquarters. No security or anything? No, no. no. And So are you armed? No, East Timor was unarmed. Fair dinkum. So you've got people walking around with M16s and you've got nothing. Yeah, yeah. The, the weapon uh, 
the militia. So we, the militia were everywhere. Um, but the Indonesian police were there to be our protection, a, p- a police called Polri. So the um, Indonesian police? Were, yeah. Yeah, So right. they, were, they were still uh-huh. in control, but really it was being run by the military. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Kapasas is the special forces of Indonesia. And let's just say there may have been some linkages between Kapasas and the militia. Yeah. I was, and, I, was I mean, a lot of so. this is recorded in the official Australian history at the Australian War Memorial that deals with uh, East Timor and, yeah. and the conflict and the Australian involvement. So, um, and I did make, I've made a contribution to that official history. So, yeah, right. I, I kept a fairly good diary. Anyway, this guy left the um, the office, the M16 militia man, and then we were literally just going about our business and then automatic gunfire erupted right so, outside sorry, the he, office. You you were, you got on the ground. Yeah, so he left. Did he take so, your radios and stuff? No, or? no he no. just came in, yelled in Indonesian. We thought, oh, this is bad. Let's all get down. We all got down and he, he left. I thought he must have wanted to take your communications or something. That was, we didn't know what he wanted. But it was just threat, wow. threatening and, and harassment. And then it was all hell broke loose. So we, the UN were evacuating a whole heap of personnel that day. We were getting rid of 75 and keeping 25 or, or thereabouts. That was a already pre-planned exit. Already pre-planned. Right. Um, the Herc was on its way. Right. And, yeah, then this gunfire in the, the whole town just started in automatic gunfire. So we're all hugging the floor and I remember being on the floor with an Australian Army guy. There were six Australian Army military uh, liaison officers across the island and we just had one in our district. And we're listening to these hundreds and hundreds of rounds being fired right outside our office. And, and that, was that directed at you then or was that just not at that fighting? We, we, having done all that tactical training... I was pretty used to a lot of automatic gunfire yeah, and sound and flash devices and all those sorts of things. And so we're on the floor going, yeah, this is, this is not good. There's a lot of rounds here. And then literally mm. I'm asking John or John's asking me, do you think they're blanks? Ah. And as soon as we'd asked the question, do you think they're blanks, uh, rounds started coming through the window at shoulder height. And, oh. the, and we're on the, I'm hugging, holding the biggest piece of concrete I can to my back. Um, like I'm on the wall under my desk using the radio, calling a lockdown. Yeah. As, and the glass is falling around me. And to this day, we, I remember one of the ladies who was in charge of that district, I'm pretty sure she was saying the Lord's Prayer. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure I, I smelt someone else had, had shed themselves and yeah, feces. Yeah. You know, they, they'd lost it um, and John got on the phone, the satellite phone to Dilly going, we are under, uh, under fire. Yeah. We need assistance. So was the military person armed? Well, it… Uh, it probably doesn't make any difference. No, no. 100 people yeah. outside. <laughs> no, it's a UN mission. So, um, no, no right. the Australian military wasn't armed. There was no UN uh, ready force, QRF, anything like that. Nothing. We… we Worse. The only way that this whole thing would happen was for us, for the UN to agree to Indonesia to be responsible for our safety and security. Wow. When it was the Indonesians that were shooting at us. So that, that later transpired that it was a sniper in a tower 
probably 50 metres, not even, from our office and that's where the rounds were coming from. So a mate of mine ended up picking up some of the shells. When he went back in in, in September, uh, he went and got some of the empty casings, which I still have to this day. Because yeah, is that right? Yeah. I, I still remain totally amazed that uh, those rounds never struck anyone in that office and, you know, I'm just thankful that uh, I've got a photo pointing um, at the rounds on an inner window and I've got a smile on my face but that's because it didn't bloody hit me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah, we all – short time after that, the military commander – Indonesian military commander for the whole area came into the office and said, martial law has been declared across the island. We cannot guarantee your safety and security any further. Uh, we are recommending slash ordering you to leave the country. Yeah, yeah, right. And at that point, everyone went, you know, there was no, there was no option. Yeah, I know, I mate, we're, we're going to stay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not like you're going to argue with that one. And so, so they hadn't officially turned on you at that stage. It was just they that that sort of protective force hasn't hadn't gone hostile against you. No, no, right. But yeah, I, I would suggest direct directly. I should say, yeah. Early, some of the earliest shootings had been uh, Bremob shooting in our house. So there was a lot of complicit yeah. actions going on between the military, the Bremob, and the militia. Militia, yeah. So the militia guy that came in uh, was wearing a Kapasas hat. Oh, really? Yeah. So. There you go. Yeah. yeah that they, says a lot. <laughs> they didn't want to lose their island. Yeah, of course. And yeah. the idea they had to get the UN out, things deteriorated in Dili. Decisions were made to evacuate the UN force almost. A, a small element was left holed up in, in Dili. The Dili compound uh, was overrun by East Timorese. East Timorese ran to the hills. Yeah, right. And over a period of, of days, the the island was set on fire. 75% easy was burnt to the ground. Wow. Uh, hundreds of people were murdered. And, I mean, we all saw the news as it transpired. And then as a result, uh, Interfet, Australia became the yeah. lead for Interfet, which then went in by, oh, I think it was around the 20th or 22nd of September, something like that, when, um, when uh, Australia led that Interfet force to restore order yeah. in, in Timor. I'm just trying to think what was going through your mind when you're, you're in a country, another country when that's just happened to you and then the people looking after you just said, martial law has been declared. I, I can't imagine what's going through your head. It, um, in one way, I was so pleased to be part of that mission because it gave a country a voice about their future, yeah, and a vote on their future. And it was clear that they wanted to not be part of Indonesia. Going through my head, I remember having a pretty solid cry on the C-130 as we ran down the runway at Bacow. We had 126 on board yeah. plus four crew, which to my understanding is a record almost for a C-130. Yeah, right. We managed to smuggle Bishop Bellow out 
of the country, who was a, a prominent East Timorese uh, religious figure, right, who uh, would have been murdered by the, by the militia, yeah, uh, for sure. And we, um, so having that, what's running through my head, man, glad I didn't get shot. Yeah. I'm feeling for the people that we've left behind, all those East Timorese that were working for the UN were yeah, a direct threat of yeah. being murdered. There was a standoff at our back our airport when we were leaving with the local East Timorese that had been working for us and we managed the, – the militia were sort of surrounding the group. Yeah, right. And we managed to get them on a helicopter – to Dili, and then later uh, secured in Dili, and then later uh, many of them were evacuated to Darwin, and um, yeah, there was a sort of whole set up out at out at Darwin RAF base for locals that had worked for the UN um, to get all that stuff squared away. Did you ever wish you were still working at Wonderland? <laughs> Wally World. Um, <laughs> no, I think. I mean. I've probably reflected more on what took place in East Timor more in the last few years. Right. They've done a little bit of a, a, a review on, on what and, – and my my circumstance there is, is nowhere near as bad as some of the other AFP members that were in other parts really? of the island. Um, we didn't – we were so f- um, dispersed, we didn't really get to see each other or, or, or talk to others. Right. You didn't so know what you, was going on in the other areas. No, you yeah. very much worked in isolation. Um, radio communications was minimal. Uh, we would rely on um, on a satellite phone once a week. I'd, I'd get access oh, to a sat wow. phone to sort of call home. So, there were, And any other time, if we used the Indonesian telephone system, then it was pretty yeah. clear that <laughs> someone else was listening to it. <laughs> You're not the only one on the call. Yeah. Yeah, right. Oh. So that was Timor and we sort of got evac out. How long were you over there? So we went in in June and were evac uh, September 7, something like oh, that. Oh, so you were there for a good while. Yeah, yeah. it was supposed to be 12 weeks deployment. Yeah. So the idea being once the vote was done and the result announced there was going to be a, a, another level of uh, sort of helping the community moving forward. Yeah, okay, yeah. But all of that obviously yeah. didn't take place. Up. And yep. the AFP still sent in a, a, the next contingent. I remember yep. we got evac to Darwin. We had some decompression time and a meeting with the Sykes and uh, all that sort of stuff. And then uh, we all went home. ANSET was still flying then. I remember ANSET flying yeah. home on the ANSET plane via Adelaide <laughs> um, back to back to Canberra and home. And I think we all got some got some leave. Uh, like we had to leave with no no gear. All my equipment was left. In back hour, you got one ten kilo bag. That was it. To, yeah, I was going to say, if you. your capacity was people weight. <laughs> all vehicles, all kit was left at the airport, which was all later burnt. Um, and yeah, it took you one ten kilo bag of whatever your, your go bag, what we yeah. call the go bag. Um, so when we got to Darwin, we we had no clothes. Yeah, right. So the commissioner at the time was Mick Palmer, and I think everyone was given two hundred bucks to go on. Buy, buy some clothes. <laughs> wow. So we bought some clothes, had a week in Darwin. I had good friends with some British cops and we had also Kiwi cops and Swedish cops. So the uh, the, the pubs in Darwin got a bit of a hit. Yeah, I was going to um, say, what did decompression that. time look like? 
<laughs> yeah, it, it was. Uh, it, yeah, Rock's yeah. Drift did all right, I think. <laughs> I can imagine it. Yeah, I've often wondered what the the word the code word decompression time actually means in reality. Uh, yeah. yeah, we got to go and have a massage on the AFP coin. I thought that was pretty nice. Really, down at Cullen Bay, there they sent us to go and have a have a, a massage, um, which was which was really nice, and and it's something that has sort of become more popular for me now as well, just to to de stress and relax. Mm. Um, is is good. It's interesting that not necessarily on the on the list of approved treatments for PTSD uh, in in many providers' minds. I've I've been through that where it was recommended by one, and then when I tried to get the approvals for it, they went not happening. Jeez. Yeah. Go to your psych. That's shocking. Yeah. Anyway, what'd you do after you got home? Back to uh, back to the Intel role. No, I was actually. Starting to build a house outside of Canberra in a place called Murrum Bateman. We'd bought a block of land there in '95. Uh, we had our our daughter was born in March '98, and so when we came back from Timor, it was about getting this house underway. So that's before you went to Timor. Uh, the birth of your daughter. Yep, she was 18 months. When How I went did over. that did that play on your mind while you were away? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. We had an A four picture of me laminated, and Millie still got it, and she would kiss me good night every night, kissing yeah. this this photo of of a dad. And as it as it turns out, um, whilst when I left to go to East Timor, I didn't know, but my wife was pregnant with our second, oh. and she lost the baby whilst I was in in Timor. Ah. Oh. God, I, I can't imagine what I, I I literally can't imagine what that must be like for for both of you. I just wasn't I, meant to be at that time. Yeah, but that's like that being isolated from each other in a time like that. I man. Yeah, it was it was a. I do often look back and reflect on on that team or tour itself and just wonder how much of an impact it had, not yeah. only on me but on on, yeah. on my family. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would go through my mind too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because I like I mean I've I had a few little stints away talking about like weeks, but I certainly wasn't going into a hostile. Um, you know, working in emergency services, you never know day to day what's going to come and land in your plate. But I mean, it certainly wasn't being deployed overseas into a <laughs> into a country that's basically being held hostage by its uh, former uh, former occupants. So we had some time off and then I thought about it and I went, I haven't done much in the sense of federal policing operations, like national stuff. Yeah, right. A couple of the other guys had the opportunity um, that Morrow and Turbo had got some transfers, I think what we call um, rental assisted type transfers oh, yeah. to Sydney. Yeah. And I, I thought, oh, Perth would be good. So I put yeah. my hand up and, and went and saw one of the bosses and, I ended up moving to Perth. We, we, as a family, we moved to Perth and um, spent two years working in the Perth office. Right. Which was a small, smaller, but it gave that chance to see the national side of yep. the AFP yep. with a lot more crime types in a smaller office. So in Sydney, you might just do drugs and that's it. 
Yeah, um, right. But in a place like Perth, it's all hands on deck. Yeah. For all crime for types. Whatever so, comes in. Yeah. Uh, plus, by that time, I was also an operational safety trainer. I was a firearms instructor okay. and yeah, yeah. and defensive tactics yeah. uh, instructor. So, I was doing a lot of that. I was also assisting CPP because over there oh, they yeah. had a, a US uh, consul general. Okay. Uh, so I'd assist with some of that. I had also completed some surveillance training, so I kicked off and uh, assisted the surveillance team over there. This is not fair, man. I'm listening to this lineup of things. I'm like, okay, so you rescue, your tactical, your CPP, now surveillance. I'm like, I I don't know what was going through my head when I joined New South Wales Cops because <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that there. I was pretty good, like Perth. It's just very isolated. Yeah. Um, oh, I get. I get it. Like, the, and we had the Sydney Olympics. So, yeah. and and I came over east. Oh, okay. Went, oh, so you were over there for the Olympics? Yeah, yeah I came right. back for the. I looked after the King of Tonga, King Tupou um, the Fourth. Uh, we provided CPP to many of the dignitaries that came to Australia yeah, for that, and we worked right. with the New South Wales Police. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had in, quite in a few of my mates that did, you know, CPP in different roles in, the, in that sort of. Um, what would you call it? Uh, that that work up for that just that overload of what's yeah, normally massive. specialized roles. Yeah, it was a that was a big deployment. I think for we were. I just uh, wonder what the Olympics would have looked like if it was in two thousand and two. Yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah when nine eleven happened, I uh, I went wow. That, uh, our Olympics would have been a very different event. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So actually, whilst I was in Perth, I did. Um, one of the bigger, we did a one ton, I was in surveillance at the time and we did, I was living in a truck stop north of Geraldton and uh, there was a one ton cocaine importation. As an undercover operator? No, no, it was just, just a surveillance. surveillance. Yeah, okay. So we were following two, um, two Colombians up there and um, they were supposed to come in at the 26th parallel, was where the boat, and so we had Coast Watch and all sorts of ah, okay. other agencies involved and uh, it took a while to locate and it was July 2001. Uh, anyway, these jokers came ashore at a place called Steep Point. Steep Point is the right. westernmost point on the Australian oh, right, west coast. Okay. Yeah. In the like in the middle of nowhere. We'd thankfully we'd actually it's a lot of remote coastline oh, really, over there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 We'd sent up our technical team twenty four hours earlier and they managed to pick it up on thermal imaging. They they Filmed the whole lot. These guys right. scuttled a ship in the, uh, 110 really? meters of water, and then uh, there were three crew, two, two, two Americans and one Colombian, and it was just a really interesting job watching these guys day after day. Yeah, you know, trying to trying to infiltrate a surveillance team into a place like Geraldton yeah. was, was pretty difficult. I remember I was running around in a in a miner's car. With, oh yeah, you know, right. Big flag and yeah, yeah, yeah. all that sort of stuff. So that was a that was a really good job uh, to be involved in, and then we had to move, you know, this night nearly a thousand kilos of cocaine to back to Perth. A and I think, ton. I think a lot of the bikies were starting to get mobile in Perth not long after the news were broke. They? Yeah, got it back there safely, and then, uh, and then and then nine eleven happened, and. Pretty much once that happened, obviously things picked up for U.S. interests in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I ended up helping out with the U.S. Consul General's protection detail in, in Perth for the rest of my days until we sort of finished up at the end of 01 and 
and came back to Canberra. Yeah, right. What's it What's it like sitting off Colombian drug runners out in the middle of nowhere? I, I, I'm just picturing how much backup you wouldn't have had if it all went belly up. Yeah, it was weird because I was the only one trained with a long arm at that point. So I still had my shotgun qualification. I still had my MP5 qualification, but I managed to bring a shot in. I remember one night I was literally digging a hole. It was like one o'clock in the morning and these Colombians are down on the beach just near Geraldton trying to look out to sea and, and just case, oh, to, case to, out the joint. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. And they were driving r- literally metres past where I am trying to dig oh. a hole under a bush and not knowing what weaponry they had or uh, yeah. access to. Yeah, it, it, it's just part and parcel of <laughs> Of you your do. career. Not, yeah. Not, not, yeah, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to picture it because, um, you know, that's pretty f- – that's, that's a very uncommon uh, job in the police forces to be involved in. Like surveillance is fairly niche and, you know, sitting off Colombian drug lords on the WA coast is even more unusual, you know. I'm just trying to picture what that would have been like. Yeah, it was. That's it was, intense. Yeah, it had, had its moments. Yeah. <laughs> so back over uh, east. Yeah, so we left and then 2002 I came back to Canberra. Or we all came back to Canberra. So we had our son. He was born in um, in Perth. He, uh, which was great. Will was born in November of 2000. And then at the end of 01, we moved back to Canberra uh, to a house to a house that had been built by a mate who's a builder. Yeah, right. Out at Murrum Bateman. And we moved into that at the beginning of 2002. And I returned, or now, for the first time, into close personal protection in Canberra. Okay. And I started working on the Israeli ambassadors team. And in... Later that year, I moved on to the US ambassador's team uh, okay. in November 2002. And then in March 2003, Second Gulf War really took off. Yeah, uh, right, yep, yep. And I was on the US ambassador's team. I ended up acting as a team leader on that on that team. Things were pretty intense. I can uh, imagine. There, on, yeah. on the back of September 11. Uh, with that, with that person, <laughs> yeah, and this guy yeah. was in was a partner with the president, uh, George Bush. They owned a baseball team together. Oh, like, oh, wow. Um, okay, so pretty tight. Yeah. So yeah, and he he, he was not a career diplomat. He was a, a political appointee. Okay. Um, so that was a pretty challenging, but yeah. equally equally good. And I did that for a, a few years through to two thousand and five. Can you? Can you tell me a little bit about the CPP world in the sense of like how many people are you like if you're a team leader what does a team what does a team look like like how many people is it and how on earth do you cover 24 hours Yeah so the team back then was probably somewhere between 9 and 12 uh full time assigned for that one person for that one person and uh you, you don't have that whole team working on a given day Yeah you adjust the size of your team subject to the venues that you're going to. Yeah. Again, the US Embassy is secured and we don't provide any protection whilst he's inside yeah. the US Embassy. Uh, and we would provide static security if we were, saying, a hotel in Melbourne. 
Oh yeah. We would do the CPP, and then in order when it's time for him to go to bed, we would go to bed as well and leave a static security arrangement yeah, uh, right. in place. But yeah, you're looking at the movement of the protectee from location A to B to C to etc. Yeah. And you always have someone in advance on at different locations. You have the, your travelling team, and you yeah. have a security car that is able to provide that immediate action okay. need if, if if a threat presents. So you're looking at vehicle manoeuvres, you're looking at foot manoeuvres, you're looking at the ability to extract the principal to a safe location, to a vehicle, to wherever it might be. There's a lot of variety. that It, 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 it changes constantly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can imagine you because like what you said before, like your operating environment is so random. The, the, like, the words assess, reassess are constantly running through your mind. Yeah, right. You know, if you're walking down a street, you're looking what what's going to give me cover, what's going to give me concealment, where yeah. do, where do I take him if if something goes bang now? Yeah. What am, what's my next move? So you live your life yeah. looking for that next move yeah. should something happen. All but, all the while you're still looking for what's wrong. Yeah. yeah you're looking for the threat. So we, we we talk a lot about hands demeanor stance. So you do a lot of people watching and going, what are what are your hands doing? Yeah. What's their demeanor? Are they agitated? Uh, is is their stance aggressive, especially in a, in a political sense when we're looking after our politicians in Australia? Yeah. And you're doing media packs or interviews. Yeah. yeah, yeah, You know, you'll often find someone that is going to take action uh, is not. They might have an aggressive stance, and they they tend to stand out. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the plan anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, that would have been a busy time, like. Because there was there was so much going on with the US, I guess back then. Yeah, it was very busy time uh, through that 04 through to sort of 07 window. I did um, there's I did some stuff back then that you know I'll take to my grave. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's in that highly sensitive space um, where it, it it sits, you know, non-disclosure agreements and yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. secrecy provisions and some some very sensitive CPP operations. So that was that was quite challenging as well. And yeah. I think I, I ended up in a team called General Visit. So in 2006, we had the Melbourne Commonwealth Games and that's when I was assigned to look after Her Majesty the Queen and wow. Prince, Prince Philip. So I was Prince Philip's personal protection officer and another mate of mine, Rico, was assigned to Her Majesty. And so the, the two of us uh, spent the best part of, oh, I think they were here for five days or thereabouts. Yeah, right. Uh, they stayed at Government House in Canberra and we would fly down to Melbourne for the Commonwealth Games. She yep. opened the Games and then we had activities in Canberra and activities in Sydney. And that was a, that was a really good time doing and looking after uh, Her Majesty and Prince Philip. We... I also did at that, I think at the same year, was um, a visit by His Holiness the Dalai Lama to um, to Australia. He did five states in an 11-day window and I was the personal protection officer for His Holiness. Five states in 11 days. 18 yeah. speaking engagements. Uh, it was That was probably one of the best times in my career. Really? Uh, it was just an incredible Because you think of the... 
you think of the Dalai Lama, like who who could possibly want to hurt the Dalai Lama? Like, <laughs> is there a more peaceful person or person yeah. on earth? Yeah. So what? Yeah. And as it turned out, the very final speaking engagement he had was in Sydney. And it was a wet day, which probably meant less people turned. I think it was in the domain. But, yeah, there was, and we, we call them mental health consumers, let's say, but there was someone <laughs> that, that had had a, a set to for him and clearly there are political issues uh, surrounding Tibet and um, the interference from uh, other groups yeah. is, is pretty strong. So it, it was just the people that, were around him. Uh, I met some wonderful people that were responsible for some of the security uh, resourcing, a guy called Steve and another lady called Shirley who, between the three of us, we became the three musketeers. Shirley worked for <laughs> a corps at the time and she managed all of the hotel accommodation and, oh, yeah. and yep. vehicles because the, the government sort of had to be careful that we, you know, to not upset too many people because um, even though the status of His Holiness um, just meant that everything had to be done in balance. But Yeah. You know. Yeah, because I forgot about that tension back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that, that does put it – yeah, how do you stay neutral? <laughs> yeah, interesting. But a, a, a truly amazing man. I, I often tell people when we first got in the lift in Perth, he held my hand in the lift. Well, that's a bit weird. And so I tried the double pump. Yeah, yeah. And he just kept holding it and we got up to the room, put him in the room and then he comes out for that whatever and get in the lift, he holds my hand again. And so I'm travelling wow. I travel in the car with, with the Dalai Lama in, in the back seat and he did this in every lift, in every hotel, in every venue that we went to because I was with him the whole time for 11 days except when he was in his room. Yeah. And because we took chopper flights I think there was three or four helo flights into different locations. Yeah, okay. Um, I remember we got off the plane in um, Brisbane and we went straight down onto the tarmac into a short car to go around to a helicopter to get in and, and fly somewhere else. To a venue, yeah, right. Um, so there was a little bit of that going on. Same in Melbourne. We flew out to Ballarat. We took a chopper from the middle of Melbourne, those red choppers that come off the, the yeah, Yarra River yeah. in Melbourne. It was just a an amazing experience to see the reactions. I remember at Rod Laver Arena, um, Vic Pohl were providing motorcycle escort yep. for him for the time. That's where we spent the bulk of our time. As we came out of uh, Rod Laver Arena onto the, the main road there, people were getting out of their car and I just remember seeing this lady get out of the driver's car because the traffic had been stopped and she almost like got down on her knees and was almost like really? praying to, towards the Dalai Lama. I was going, man, this guy has such an impact on yeah. on people. Yeah. But the positive positive uh, vibe that we got. Yeah. That I was going to ask, is that is that because I, I would have assumed a, a highlight would have been looking after the visiting royals. But, yeah, but it, like, it, I'm just wondering, is that is that what made that so special? Just the just the presence of him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and seeing the reaction people have around him right. and, and apart from the fact that he's you know he's got that silly laugh he's yeah <laughs> he's, he's a very humorous fellow yeah and it, it was just a pleasure to see how all of that worked and he's his brother his younger brother um 
I went and had dinner with a few times with our little three musketeer group. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a cheeky little Is humorous right? fellow as well, you know. You can sort of <laughs> see how it comes along. But, yeah, it was just a special time and big memories. Yeah. And There's not too many people that would have had that much time with him ever. <laughs> yeah, and, and people are paying tens of thousands of yeah. dollars for some of these special Moments. tickets. And yeah, yeah. I was very lucky at, right at the end in Sydney in the hotel. I had a, a, a one-on-one audience with him uh, where he presented uh, the white scarf uh, oh, to yeah. me. And I know there's a proper term for it and I apologise to listeners but for not naming yeah. it the right thing. But uh, he, he presented me with that the white scarf and we had an embrace and had a photo and, yeah, it was very special. Yeah. He said I had a good heart. <laughs> well, you do. So he's right. <laughs> yeah. Gee, I, I, I just can't. I Again, I have to put this back into perspective of you, you join the police. I don't think there'd be one thought that one day you're going to be kicking around the country with the Dalai Lama in your mind when you join no, you, you, yeah, you don't have that thought. Yeah, I, wow, that's cr- that's crazy. That's literally crazy to think that you've you've done that. Yeah, do you ever stop and look back and think that sounds like a story of someone else? No, I suppose in more recent months, especially out here on the walk, I've I often reflect back on my overall career and. Think about the different opportunities and adventures that I've been yeah. so lucky to have. So, yeah, I, I just remain thankful and grateful that mm. I've had those opportunities and that they've worked out worked out well for me. Well, having dinner with Kevin Rudd blew me away when you mentioned that the other night. I went, who gets to have dinner with the Prime Minister one-on-one? So, yeah, I've... I've <laughs> I've met a few pollies over those over those years, and um, and at the end of the day, they're just people. Yeah. They're just people, man. And I did three federal election campaigns. So when an election is called, we and and Parliament is suspended, um, yeah. and the government goes into caretaker mode. The AFP provides a, a CPP team for the leader of the opposition. Ah, oh, okay. Who's yeah, also yeah. you know we just call it Lotto, leader of the opposition. So. In 2001, I looked after Kim Beasley. In 2004, I was the team leader for Mark Latham. And in 2007, I was one of the team leaders with a guy called Bart uh, on Kevin yeah. Kevin Rudd. So clearly, um, the 01, Beasley yeah. didn't win. Latham didn't win. Yeah. I, I was there for that handshake, actually, with Latham and John Howard in, Is that right? outside that radio studio. That was an interesting time. Um, <laughs> interesting. And then 07... Kevin 07, uh, we did the campaign in October that year and, again, a federal election campaign is a lot of time away. Yeah. It's a lot of travel. Uh, you're on the go. You've, yeah. got, you've got to have your team in essentially three locations, uh, where you are, where you've just come from and where you're going to next. Yeah. And you're constantly moving that team around and, and trying to throw in days off for, for people. Mm. So, yeah, I did look after Kevin 07 for uh, or through to February 09. And in February 09, on my last shift, we're driving back into the lodge. I'm in the car with him 
and he invites me into the lodge for a drink, knowing that it was my, my last shift. Yeah, okay. And I said, oh, no, it's fine. I, I, and, yeah, no, come in, come in and have a drink and we'll have some dinner. Yeah. I said, oh, it's all right, PM, I've, I've had I have, – no, come in, we'll cook up a steak. Really? And I went, oh, okay, what have I got to lose? So because I knew I was leaving close personal protection, wholly yeah, yeah. and solely. So I wasn't – I was I was moving into witness protection. I was, okay. I was, I was stepping away from CPP and going to what we call, you know, the dark side. <laughs> um, and I proceeded to go into the lodge. We sat down and had a glass of wine. The chef cooked up a nice sirloin. We then sat at the dining table in the lodge for a good hour and a half. We had another glass of wine and we just spoke about life. Wow. It was it was quite surreal. Uh, yeah. And it was just that, you know, that personal time. I, I got on very well with... With Therese, his wife. Oh yeah, because yeah. we used to sit in the back seat of the vehicle together. Kevin rode in the front, and uh, she was she's absolutely lovely. And it was just a, a nice way to finish. Yeah, my CPP. Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's so at that point. Yet I say again, yeah. you, you've had a very interesting time as a copper. That was, yeah. and because the next day, the Saturday was the. Uh, fires in Victoria, Black Saturday fires in Victoria. Oh, Feb- yeah, right. February 09. So it was quite a hot night um, and I, I, I just always remember the next day going, oh, holy moly, you know, the, yeah. those fires just raged through Victoria. Yeah. And that was the end of my Super P days and I then moved over uh, into witness protection with the AFP. would like to take a moment to thank our platinum sponsors, Police Bank and the Australian Federal Police Association. As you can imagine, walking from the centre of Australia to Canberra is no small feat. And without the support of our sponsors, this walk would just not be possible. So thanks again to the Police Bank and the Australian Federal Police Association for supporting the walk. So I, I don't know virtually anything about WITSEC, um other than understanding the concept of what it's there for, but how does that? How is it different to CPP? So the AFP Witness Protection Program, it, it's called the, the National Witness Protection Program. It falls under an act uh, from 1994. It's quite legislated and structured. Uh, I probably can't say too much about mm how and, and, and what we do, but it, it's a tool for investigators to be able to use or get a witness, gather some evidence. So quite clearly, people that are in the program have a serious threat against mm. them. There's someone that's out there that would like to see them not on this earth. Mm. And they're, uh, it's all about... Re- Re-identifying, relocating, and reassimilating uh, yeah, witnesses, right. and there there's manners and methods by which we do that, and apply all sorts of different strategies to ensure the safety and security of that particular witness. Yeah. Again, it's it's fairly intense 
Yeah, I, uh, I imagine it is. I'm picturing what it must look like as in, a in job. In the CPP and, world, uh, you're dealing with an unknown threat yeah. that might just pop out of anywhere. So you, you've got that constant yep. look. Whereas in the WP world, you generally have an idea where the threat might come from. Right. Yeah. And there's many things put in place to counteract that threat and that if if a witness was actually being targeted, yeah. then many other things have fallen over. Yeah, okay. I was going to say there's to lots of layers of, yep. you know, yeah, preparation there. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's pretty good. I, I managed to go to um, overseas and I worked really? with the United States, States Marshals. I went to a conference for them. I presented in Brazil uh, at, a, at a conference in Sao Paulo. Um, so I got a bit of travel uh, running around there as well. So <laughs> that was good. And then after WP, uh, we, the AFP had a mission running in 2011 in Afghanistan, uh, oh, yeah. assisting with the training of the Afghan National Police. Yep. So I put my hand up for that and jagged that, jagged a spot. Yeah, it was right. a 50 week deployment and off we went to a war zone. So you've got kids at home. How did that go down? Yeah, probably not too well. Uh, I had some serious health issues in way back in 06, 07 where okay. I had two emergency surgeries on my stomach from a, a, a malrotation of the midgut or a volvulus, um, which pretty much could have killed me but didn't. Um, and so they had emergency surgery. So kids... 2011, Afghan, they've sort of seen Dad yeah. on the move a lot, not home a lot, and I guess I, I was looking to put the CPP, WP time to bed. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because at the end of my WP, that that was the best part of 10 years. Uh, right, in, okay. In that protection space. Yeah. And again, the the need for going to Afghanistan met the sort of training and history that I had, yeah, my experience. Right. And I, yeah, it was our fifth contingent rolling over to, it was 28 all up, 28 AFP, and we were embedded with the Australian military right. in, in both Kabul, Kandahar and Tarankot. So I was, I was based in Kandahar. Kandahar Airfield, or CAF as it's known, as some of your other um, speakers have yeah. mentioned. Yeah. And it was a it, it was a weird sort of deployment. It started off, I was part of what we call a CJADF, a combined joint interagency task force with all the US agencies. So you think of anything from CIA to NSA to... Yeah, okay. All, all the all, funky squads all, all in one. The, all the funky squads. Yeah. Um, and I think it was, there wasn't a great sense of purpose okay, or mission for us. I think it was so the Australian flag could appear on the logo. Ah, okay. Yeah, right. they pretty much just they would trial everything. Yeah. And then it sort of midway through the tour, we stopped contributing to that CJADF and took on more of a police advisor role for military leaders and then the best part of the whole tour was 
I went to Fort Polk in Louisiana to deliver two seven-day uh, – sorry, deliver a lecture, which was a three-hour lecture, deliver it every day for two lots of seven days over I think it was January and March of, of 2012. And that gave me the, the greatest satisfaction because it was about talking about community policing to American soldiers who were about to deploy oh, okay. to Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. So they were in their pre-deployment training. Many had done Iraq but not many had done Afghanistan at that time. And me and a full bird American colonel gave this three-hour lecture on the Afghan National Police and community community policing. And because it was the US soldiers that were going to be out on the streets of Afghanistan uh, delivering what we could call policing services policing or, or, trying, or yeah. trying to. So... It was just a, a great experience to do that. So, um, yeah, that was that was Afghanistan. Lots of travel. What was it like being in a proper war zone, though? I, I, I'm trying to just fathom your, you know, what what living there was like. Yeah, we lived in Camp Baker, and we were armed. Clearly, you know, okay. it's a war zone, so you go. We only had Glocks, nine mil Glocks. Yeah. But it's weird. You go to the dining facilities or defects, as they're known, you know, and everyone's got long arms, pistols strapped to them. Yeah, right. You know, some of them have got two long arms. You know, it's it's weird. And you're sitting down having a meal. Yeah. Um, with all these all this weaponry around, it was a very busy base. It had a lot of IDF or what they call indirect fire, so rocket attacks being directed at the airbase was yeah. frequent and are you oh, sleeping and, in one of those hardened shelter things yes yeah, yeah so camp baker had created um these three two level hardened uh shelters so that was one saving grace in the contingent i was part of we didn't we used to live with the brits in a unhardened location okay but we moved into camp baker which just meant that you could Get a good, put your earplugs in. We shared a, I shared a room with a guy, pretty much the size of Dolly. Really, so two of us in a in this sort of space. Oh. Um, <laughs> he was a snorer, so I oh. I, I, wore, I wore my plugs a lot. Yeah, yeah. And we actually had bunk beds at, at both ends, so if it could take four people. Right. So the guys up in TK were they were really Shit. crammed in uh, in a similar sort of space. So we lived in Camp Baker and. Because we lived in hardened stuff, every time the rocket alarm went off, you could just roll over and go, "Well, I'm in a hardened, hardened building." Right. So you're you're where you needed to be anyway. Yeah, and if you're out and about, and you weren't in your digs, um, then you, the first thing is to get down on the ground and 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 then get to a a bunker. Mm. So they have lots of bunkers all over the place. It was it was a, it was a weird experience. Um, like every Saturday they would have a fun run. I did 30 fun runs in Afghanistan, <laughs> raising money for Serious? different courses. And I, I I did an article for one of the AFP uh, magazines and I titled it, It's All About the Shirt. So you'd pay 20 bucks to go in a fun run and they would raise money yeah, yeah. and you'd all get a shirt, like whatever the shirt was for that particular run. And I came home with 30 different running shirts, huh. you know, either Canadians or Americans or different platoons or different causes, like the Australian, our Rotary Wing team, they, we had a Australian-hosted fun run and it was always sort of on a Saturday morning. Yeah. 
and in the winter of 2011, I remember we did a Jingle Bells one, like a Christmas one. We're all dressed up as bloody Santas and, and you could just hear all these Jingle Bells running down. And then occasionally these Saturday morning runs would get interrupted with the IDF alarm going off, the indirect the rocket attack. Yeah, really? It was a British voice, a female British voice, rocket attack. You know, it has this big siren. Over the PA sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, rocket yeah. attack, rocket attack. And then uh, so you'd all scatter to the sides of the road, find a find a gutter as deep as you possibly could because you're out in the open and you just don't yeah. know where these rockets are going to land. And and then once the all clear is given, you go, okay, well, boom, let's keep go again. Keep going and and Keep going. Seriously. That's uh, but in the time I was there, I think two people died as a result of a rocket attack, right? Um, and uh, and a handful of people were injured, you know, because it literally would just it could come through the the dining facility. Yeah, um, it was it was just so they they didn't use any science in the lining up of these rockets. They put them on a pile of rocks. Oh right, line it up. Oh yeah, that looks about right. Just and let it go. It go like cracker and, night. And they could they could travel five, six, seven k's. Oh really? To get there, so they, ah. they oh, thought, so that's how they get the flight, the, the pre warning of yeah. picking it up in yep. the air. So there's right. a radar system, and so they're in the air for some time. Yeah, and it, it picks it up. So you generally the alarm will go off, and you'll have a bit of time before it lands. But occasionally the alarm will go off, and then suddenly it's landed. Oh, that was a bit a bit late, people. Yeah, yeah. So Afghan was was an interesting. Deployment as well, and then is that when they IED? I'm just trying to not knowing the history over there. Is that the IED threat was in full swing in that period? Was it? Yeah, definitely for the for the troops outside the wire, um, on patrol, IEDs were everywhere, and uh, even to the point you know we're running a training. Well, the, the Australian military is running a training facility at TK as well, and you'd be trying to train these guys with how to use tools and circular saws and those sorts of things. Right. They would take the circular saw blades and turn those, get two of them and turn it into a, a plate system so that when the two plates connected, oh. it would turn into a bomb. Um, so there was there was a lot of that going on. A, a number of Australians out of the 41 in total that we lost over there um, died in the time that I was there. I think I recall maybe five or six um, Australians been killed during the my tour because we we were there longer than the standard military tour. Okay. So they generally come in for six months, um, whereas ours was a fifty week assignment. Oh f- wow, full year basically. Yeah. Um, and, but we would roll in and out. Um, okay. With some of our leave, so we ended up doing uh, eight months in mission. So it was thirty two weeks yeah, on the ground. That's a long time away. And I met October twenty eleven was definitely a day I won't forget in a hurry was a, a large truck bomb uh, went off uh, about 300 metres from where I was and it was a truck that had a flatbed LPG tank on the back, 2,500 gallon LPG tank had been put on the back of this flatbed truck with the idea the truck was going to penetrate the checkpoint to Kandahar and go to somewhere and explode initiate that to then have the tank also explode and i'm not that's a lot of gas you, you're probably more scientific than me but two and a half thousand gallons times uh, 270 yeah that's a lot uh, is a lot and 
you know, the, the advice I got was that the blevy from that would have been quite horrendous that would have and would have taken a lot of people. But as it turned out, the driver got the spooks, he stopped short and the spotters, or Taliban spotters or whoever, uh, saw him stop and get out and they detonated whatever he was wearing. They wow. detonated him uh, 300 metres from where I was. So I definitely recall the, that blast, the sound of it, the, the movement of the air, the dust that was in, in the location. Uh, it was just massive and that wasn't the, the successful set. one. Yeah. You know, it moved what we call T-walls, so the concrete T-walls that were near an old um, pond near Camp Baker. It actually moved these massive concrete T-walls uh, and that's, yeah, we all, all that was found was the, of the driver with the, I think his left or his right hand, I can't remember which one, but that was all that was left of him. So that that explosion was just his suicide vest. It was yep. like what he was loaded up with, not the actual truck. Yeah, and the and the truck, yeah, the gas tank didn't explode for whatever reason. And lucky they didn't get it right. Yeah. So that yeah. was a that was a pretty interesting day for yeah, Afghan. To, to be near three hundred meters away from something that size going off, <laughs> that's close. So yeah, it was it was a weird sort of place. And then towards the end of my tour, after that training in Louisiana, uh, the some of the guys that I trained over there, I met them in TK. I was passing through on a Friday uh, on. Some some it was a graduation parade of national Afghan national police, and I saw all these boys and they oh you're the Aussie that trained us in Louisiana and Fort yeah, Polk right. you're really funny I I played them this <laughs> little skit from Scared Weird Little Guys it was a one minute clip as I finished my little lecture I said oh guys you're going to be far safer in Afghanistan than you are in Australia and this is why <laughs> and I'd play this one minute video clip of all the dangerous animals all the animals yeah and right. it had this little jingle it was one minute and they did, it brought the house down generally at the end of each lecture. <laughs> anyway, I saw these guys up in TK and they went, oh, yeah, you're the Aussie guy. Uh, and then <laughs> that was Friday. They'd just got there into theatre. And then on Sunday night I was back in back in CAF and their colonel, their, their lieutenant colonel, was literally in the um, temporary lines right opposite our office. And I said, oh, what are you doing here, colonel? You... You know, shouldn't you be up and take He went, oh, you haven't heard. I went, heard what? And he went, yeah, we went out, the boys went out on patrol that on the previous Saturday morning. Yeah. So 24 hours after I saw them on their first mission and they got blown up. Oh, God. There's seven of them. Um, two died, two were killed and five were seriously injured. And it, it just hit me. I just went, man. I was really upset um, because I'd just seen them yeah. you know, 24 hours earlier, and I, I just and it was the only ramp ceremony that I went to in in the time that I was there because the ramp ceremonies are usually held in the wee small hours in the, right. in darkness so that pe oh, okay. people can yeah. do um, they can do an honour guard on the tarmac yeah. and it not be visible yeah, to yeah. to people, and so I got up for for that one and went out to the ramp ceremony. Uh, it was just, yeah, these young people that had, you know, and because I'd seen them in Fort Polk and we'd had yeah, this sort of say, continuation yeah. and, yeah, that Bloody was hell. it was just sad, man. God. 
Yeah, that's another that's another layer above. I guess when you realise that it ain't no joke over there when you're literally hearing news like that of people you've just been talking to. Bloody hell. Yeah. So. How did you feel when the when the um, news was breaking of it sort of falling back into the hands of? I, I mean, I, I can't imagine what that feels like having been over there. Put yourself in that, you know, that danger effectively to to do a task and then have it all undone. Yeah, it was tragic. It was terrible. I I just hated watching the news and just went, man, what a what did we spend a year doing? Yeah. You know, so from a personal point of view, I'm going, oh, man, I've, we've made all these sacrifices to to try to help build this country. Yeah. And it's just going backwards. And back totally to where it started. Back to where it started. I, I, I fell over. So October 2020, I had a meltdown. And after that, I, I started getting psych support because things were unravelling uh, at a yeah, rapid right. rate because uh, it was my birthday 2020 when I just had a complete another meltdown talking right. about Afghanistan. Um, just, yeah, I couldn't believe what was happening and that it got to that point. But it did and... Um, You've just got to box it. Yeah, it's easier said than done <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, you're talking about a time not that long ago from now, but I mean, I know you went over with the MH17 side of things too. Like, what? That That's another, like, strangely hostile and complex job again. That's different again to go into a war zone because of your task. Yeah, it was. Um so after Afghan, I came back to what we what was now created called the Specialist Response Group, which was the tactical arm of the AFP. Uh, so once upon a time it was called SOT and then it became SRS and then it became SRG on the 1st of July 2012. And I fell into a sort of coordination and planning role within the SRG. So when MH17 happened in 2014, July 2014, Tony Abbott was the PM. Our commissioner said, I'll give you 50 armed AFP tomorrow morning, deployed, you know, get them on their way. And at the end of the day, the Prime Minister went, I'll take that AFP option. Yeah, right. So 50 of us were called out overnight, uh, all long-arm trained, all had some capability of, of being able to do search and rescue, yep. go looking for stuff. We got out of the country and on the first wave left commercially. We all flew commercial airlines oh, yeah. out of Australia. The first lot landed in the Netherlands, which is where – so it was Dutch-led investigation. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. We landed in uh, Amsterdam so quickly that the Dutch went, what are you doing here with all these guns? Oh, we, really? We, they didn't even, we weren't t- even ready for you? They weren't even ready. So the, the word had not filtered down in the Dutch system. So they refused our first wave entry into the Netherlands and they had to fly on to, oh, they, uh, to they London. Oh, wouldn't let them pass the airport? Wouldn't let them in. And so they then flew <laughs> on to, to London and we all were in London within 
that sort of 24-hour window, got ourselves That's a long day. reassembled. Very long day. But the Brits being a, a friendly country, yeah, yeah. They, they no problems. I mean, they, they take possession of the weapons on arrival and just store them. Yeah, yeah. And then relocated them for us and we took a, a, a RAF flight out of uh, London to back to the Netherlands the next morning, had a few hours kip. Hopefully someone's had a chat it, with them by yeah. then. <laughs> and then out of – we were in a place called Eidenhoven in, um, in the Netherlands – by then we had a Australian C-17 was in position and starting to support and we all bounced on a C-17 into Kharkiv in um, in Ukraine. And yeah. we based ourselves in Kharkiv as a group to enable DVI teams and um, to start to try to penetrate the crash site. Yeah, right. So you had forensics people with you, obviously. Were you your job was protecting the forensic investigators, or was that? No, there wasn't. It was more DVI. So okay. it, this was probably seven days after the actual plane had crashed. Yeah. So Ukrainian authorities had recovered most of the bodies, okay, uh, or body parts, but there was still some searching to be done for any further remains. Yeah. And the crash site was in a about a 35-square-kilometre area and it was in three locations or three zones, one being Ukraine territory, one being no-man's land and one being Russian separatist-controlled zone. Yeah, or what right. Essentially land, you know, being controlled by Russian that is Ukrainian and you've got this no-man's land which is contested in between. So it again, it's it's war zone, warlike. Yeah, fully hostile. Pretty, pretty sensitive, and yeah. trying to get in uh, to the crash site from multiple angles was what we were trying to do. So, um, we had been given so in a typical search and rescue, you're going to spread out, do a line search, and go yep. right, people, let's move through this field. Uh, we were given some specific data via satellite to go see all these dots, that's where there's stuff. Go there, see what you can get. Okay. And that was the purpose of, of how we went about the searching, uh, just to recover bits of the plane, oh, right. personal belongings. I remember we had some uh, dogs to assist with looking for yeah, yeah. human remains. Uh, and so we did that. We didn't know whether we'd get five minutes or five days in the search field. Out in the field looking. So how did that work? Like, how did you actually get there, and what was the process of? We ended up uh, hiring three sort of like Ford Transit type ten seater buses uh -huh. uh, with drivers because you couldn't rent cars to drive down there. The Dutch had the lead, and trying to get vehicles and uh, transport arrangements in place was very difficult. Yeah, right. There was a lot of cash transactions to uh, enable us to move. And at the end of the day, we ended up with these these three buses. I think we were paying them 300 US uh, a day. I'd have to check, yeah, check yeah. my notes. But they were really good guys and that's how we managed to, to get around. Ukra we, Ukrainian guys. Yep. Yeah. Had interpreters or okay. an, an interpreter. Uh, and so... I think at the end of the day, in total, there was only 
maybe five or six or seven days of searching. Right. And I was there towards day six, five, six, seven. And because we were rotating our teams, it was that we've set up a, a forward operating base in a place called Solidar. Uh, and we could only have a total of just over 100 personnel in that location. Right. And that includes the Dutch and any other countries that were assisting. And because it had no running water, you had six to a room. Oh, you right. Know, the local yeah. Yeah. The, the sort of local scout group were feeding, feeding us with cabbage and all the typical Ukrainian food. Um, and it was still about an hour's drive from the, from the crash site. So we would rotate our personnel between Kharkiv and Solidar and, and have people go in for two or three days, come out, send in fresh yeah. and rotate it through that way. And it was, um, it was early August, I think. And, uh, yeah, we were in a town called Rosipine, which was a town where the bulk or the most number of passengers fell through the roofs of the houses in that city. There was oh, God. something like seven or eight bodies in still in the chairs um, coming through the roofs of, of those houses. So it, it was a location where uh, the, the most bits of the plane or parts of the plane uh, ended up okay. land, landing. Yeah. So we did a we, – we were doing a thing called bring out your dead day. Which sort of, <laughs> yeah, that's what I call it. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's bring out anything. So we did a, a, little, a, a sort of flyer. This is a small country town in amongst lots of sunflower fields. Maybe maybe a thousand people might live there. Tops, yeah, right, you know, tiny across place. All, yeah, all sorts yeah. of – so it was very tiny, sort of country townish. Sent out these flyers in four different languages. If you have any part of the plane, if you have anything that you may have taken from the crash site, then yeah. please bring it and we'll take it off your hands, yeah. bring it to the town hall and we will, um, it, it, you know, it would form yeah. part of the reconstruction. And we're doing all that. We're sitting down at lunchtime waiting for people to bring stuff and then I think the Russians had just said, yeah, we're done. And they started shooting um, in the buildings uh, over our heads. So we were all set up. There was about an 11-car motorcade with our buses. By this time we had some armoured uh, uh, Tiguans, VW oh, yeah. Tiguans yeah, that yeah. come in from Germany. So we had a couple of those armoured for movement either end. Yeah. We had our three buses and, and, and a variety of couple of other cars and we were in Rosie Pine and, um, yeah, the Russians started shooting the the Dutch lead of the motorcade went, okay, everyone, we're taking fire. It is time to leave. And <laughs> we're not taking fire. We uh, we packed up pretty quick, smart, and then. Thankfully so you, they, you guys are still you you are armed at this deployment, though. No, so. well, that's the other thing. When we landed in Kharkiv, uh, the agreement had not been made between Australia and and Ukraine, and the foreign minister sent a <laughs> our foreign minister, Australian foreign minister, saying. Weapons to remain on board. Um, Serious. So no weapon. We brought no weapons into Ukraine. We could bring our PPE, like our ballistic. I bought a ballistic vest. Yeah. Um, so we could bring ballistic protection, but uh, yeah, no weapons came in. So and they God. stayed on the plane and they went back to Eidenhoven on the C seventeen. So yeah, we thankfully I had a a, a vest at least yeah. and. Um, 
it was hightailed into the cars and then <laughs> it was time to get out and the main thing then was to make sure that the drivers themselves were protected because we thought, okay, if they're shooting oh, at the buildings then we yeah. don't want our driver to be shot and then take out seven or eight of us that are yeah. travelling along in this little little Flat bus. The, yeah. the boys in the armoured cars are going all right because they've yeah. got an armoured two-rag. So it was about making sure that we got the vests onto the drivers or whoever's in the front seats. Um, and, yeah, we left Rosie Pine and headed back to the FOB at Solidar. And then it was, yeah, they went, right, this is it. It's done and dusted. We you, um, got all you're going to get. Got all we're going to get and basically. Was there anything that triggered the Russians to initiate that? I'm just trying to think, did they know you were onto something that they wanted to keep or? There was times when they were very aggressive to the search teams going, you can't go down there. You're not going through this part of the paddock. Right. So even though our mapping would say that there's, there's something, something down there. there. So, but there was nothing on that particular day. I, I just think they'd allowed searching for a week mm. and it was, that was it. We, yeah, no That's idea. Enough. Yeah. And I thought, well, let's get, get out of Dodge and <laughs> back to the fob and, um, and then it was, yeah, close the fob. And I think by this time, uh, we'd been working. Uh, for me, it was the longest set of hours I had done. We were there for three and a half weeks in total in, in Ukraine. And my average day was 17 and a half, 18 hours. Every uh, day? Every day. Man. So my short day would be like a 12 and some of the longer days were 23. Like I was, it was just, I, again, I... I, I lost it on the phone one night with D. You know, it was, it was not one night. It was seven thirty in the morning over there, and I was just yeah, right. dead tired, cooked, just yeah. broke. So, and and the the threat the risk yeah. uh, was off the scale. It was critical. Like I remember running a lot of the briefings in Kharkiv and saying to people, guys, if you don't want to go down at the crash site, here's the here's the threat. I'm, yeah. I'm giving you the intel. You don't have to do this if you don't want, because it's yeah, critical. Right. It was off the scale. If, if if this was in Australia, you wouldn't be doing it. Never it. happened. Yeah, right. Um, and we'd run those briefings. I think in total, at one point we had 106 AFP uh, running around Kharkiv. Oh, really? That many? Yeah. yeah, yeah so right. we started getting a lot more DVI personnel okay. to start on that, and because we had other things happening, uh, also back in in the Netherlands okay. with the, the whole DVI process yeah. to identify the, the all the victims off the aircraft. you got a habit of getting shot at. <laughs> well, they haven't hit yet. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say yet, should I? No. That's, uh, that's, man. Yeah, as you said, like you, do, you put a risk assessment over it and you, you, no one would ever let you do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's they true. Would, they would never, never let you do that sort of stuff in normal parameters. Yeah. Jeez. So that was, yeah, that was uh, MH17. And the, the, the backstory to MH17 as well is one of the other roles I do in the AFP and have done since 2004 is what we call a ceremonial and protocol officer course, uh, mm -hmm. protocol officer. So that supports police funerals, police station openings, recruit graduation parades, 
all those sorts of things. So I went and did my training at the police academy in New South Wales in 2004 and have been actively involved in that ever since. Okay. And for me, having been uh, to Ukraine and then uh, as the Australians were identified, so the 38 Australians, yeah. um, they were repatriated to Australia and out of those 24 were officially um, welcomed back into Australia right. before going to the morgue in Melbourne. And so I was part of the bearer party uh, along with ADF members from the Federation Guard. Uh, we did combined AFP Australian military uh, bearer parties to carry the caskets off the plane to the hearses in Melbourne. And for me, uh, I, I carried one of the Maslin children who had died and it was horrible carrying a, 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 a kid's casket but yeah. you've got to do it for the family. Um, it was just a, it was a, I just remember being in the back of the C-17, it was four of us, just four. Normally you can have a six or an eight person bearer party but we just picked up this kid's casket and it was so light. Yeah. It nearly went through the roof of the C-17. But, you know, we did 10 caskets in one hit. That was, that was the most bodies. There were 10 hearses lined up. Jeez. Not nearly as bad as what was happening in, in the Netherlands, but seeing 10 hearses yeah. um, and I think there were three families as, as a part of that uh, and, and having that involvement at the back end. I was going to say you're not – it's not just a service for you. That's – you've got history with the actual event. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was good to do. So – and that's – you know, that's – I mean, I've lost count of how many police funerals I've done um, and how many caskets I've carried or yeah. commanded. But, yeah, that was the, the, the back end of MH17. And then we what, do you, what did you do after that? I, well, we, I continued on in the SRG. Uh, so uh, through to 2019 and then uh, we stood up a, a, an area called discrete operations within SRG and it was about primarily supporting some of our... Yeah, right. Supporting our police... It was a a niche little area, people that had skills in surveillance, police that had skills in tactical work, yeah. uh, defensive skills, ability to, you know, even WP type roles. So yeah. it was an area built and created with multiple skill sets but had the capacity for long arms yeah, and, okay. and, and the skills to deal, you know, with, with close quarter battle and, and those yeah. sorts of things. So. Um, we, that was created in 2016. It also took on the air security officer role that the AFP provides for, you know, the, the uh, in-flight security officers yeah, yeah. for international flights. Yep. So I did the training in that as well. Uh, and then 
that we started delving into a lot of that counter-terrorist work. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm um, sure that's, that's bridging into that arena. Yeah, so things were pretty pretty hectic yeah. um, in that space. Yeah, I, I, I can't sort of go into too much about what we what what yeah, we did, yeah. but it was it was challenging work. Um, and the, the whole time, you know, in SRG, you're on your life, even on holidays, you're on twelve hours notice to move. Yeah, still ready to go. <laughs> um, is is generally how it rolls. So I did that through to twenty twenty nineteen. Yeah, and I just went, man, I'm 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 gassing out here, um, and so I started looking. I knew that I needed to do something different. Right. And I, the Governor-General was changing over in 2019 from Sir Peter Cosgrove to David Hurley and I thought, oh, I haven't done CPP on the Governor-General <laughs> before. Back again. <laughs> uh, and I just thought, oh, that's, it, it's, it's well-structured. So it's not like the, poli- the political protectee where... Uh-huh. They 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 will chop and change things at short notice to meet the media demand or to yeah, meet the, the right. needs of whatever message it is that they're trying to get out there. Yeah. Whereas the role of the governor general is about that ceremonial. It's about the community. Yeah. It's about the constitutional, um, and so their lives are reasonably well structured. Right. And well supported by a team. And I thought, well, this could give me some nice. Structure, yeah, uh, towards the ending end of my career, yeah. So I managed to jag the team leader position of of the Governor General's close protection team, and just a small team. And again, the the need for security is a lot lower. You've got to balance it with the protocol uh, and yeah. the ceremonial aspect. So gotcha. as a as a ceremonial officer, I could understand, and and. The, Balancing security, ceremonial, yep. and protocol yep. uh, in that environment was was a good one. Yeah, right. And has worked well for me. When you said you were gassing out a bit, I'm just trying to picture what made you f- think or feel that. What were your indicators? Uh, s- some of the jobs. Some of the jobs I did uh, just made me realise that it was not like I went to and I'm if I don't say too much it's all right I suppose I went to for four hours once right to pick up a foreign fighter and 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 follow them home right I was with a team yeah but I just went I'm like my shift was 65 hours or something holy hell and I just went oh man um, that that was just full on crazy. Just some of the other jobs, and there's some really, really sensitive stuff that we did. That'll go with me to my grave. Yeah. And I think it was. I just knew it was time. Right. I just went there. Nah, it's. It was. It was time to, to be around a little bit more for the family. Yeah. Right. And and even though CPP is demanding and you spend all that time, um, a bit more predictable than it, the other. The role. GG's role of it yeah. is far more structured, and uh, and I have a great time. Yeah. And yeah, I just 
I guess um, 2018, yeah, I just I knew it was time. Yeah, I don't I don't think I uh, had that realization myself ever. Probably should have, but I, I yeah. Now I'm, I'm always interested in hearing how other people felt that pressure cooker and what what their indicators were or what what led them to where they are now today. Yeah, and everyone's different. So everybody's uh, re- really different in that regard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I did the Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast as well. I went up as a water rat on the boats. Yeah, right. And um, I went as a boat ha- a boat. What do they call them? Boat handler, deck hand, deck hand. Yeah, did yeah. my deck hand training, and yeah, uh, and I went and had a couple. That's a of bit weeks. different to tactical <laughs> operations and yeah. everything else that you've been doing. So that that was a, that was a good experience running yeah. up there, and you know, I'd done some CPP in the mid two thousands for the the cricket world cup. Oh, I yeah. was like the police liaison officer for the umpires, and uh, <laughs> so that, that was pretty cool. No, I haven't even heard that come out anywhere yet so there you go well the AFP provided um, police liaison officers for each team that Did were they? involved in the cricket world cup so on the back of the Lint cafe in, in 2014 yeah, yeah. Um, they just wanted to be on the front foot in the sense that if we've got a, a police officer uh, associated with the team and knows the key players or the key personnel within that team structure then the linkage so we all had laptops we'd play the games it was just meant that if something happened in Melbourne or any of the other cities yeah. that was um, – Ramp up quick. It would yep. turn it on quickly. Yeah. Well, this has been a uh, – this is actually better than what I'd hoped for, this uh, chat with you today. I uh, I knew it would be great, but I, um, I have to thank you for trusting me to, to do this recording – because um, I know you've never done it before and may never do it again. And, uh, and and I know I've said it before on this walk, but I'm so privileged to have the – to be in the company that I'm in and have that trust of people like yourself on this walk to, to do what I'm doing now. And, you know, I think the great benefit of what we're doing right now is that the general public will actually get a bit of a – better understanding of what people like you have actually done and put yourself through and your family through to to do those roles that have to be done. Um, there's no option to most of what you've done. Someone has to do it. And That's true. You've done a lot of it. <laughs> the spectrum of uh, work that you've done is very unusual, um, the diversity of the work mm. that you've done uh, for one person to have done it. That's... that's uh, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody's career being so diverse ever. Yeah. That's amazing. That's bloody amazing what you fit in. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it's 36 years this month. Yeah. And I just I, – I know that I think it's time. Yeah. To, to go. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> if you look back over it, is there a – is there a uh, thing that stands out I'll – you talk about trust. You talk about what gassed me out. I don't know if you want to go down this rabbit hole and you can cut it out if you like. Mm. But in 2018, 
I was contacted by Springwood detectives about my knowledge of a pedophile operating in the lower Blue Mountains who sexually assaulted me in 1981. I had not told a single soul for 35 years of that assault. I told my brother in 2016, they rang him, they therefore rang me and it was on the Gold Coast on the waterways when I spoke to a detective senior constable from Springwood Detectives going, do I know this person, the offender? I went, yep. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened? And I outlined what had happened. He said, are you willing to go to court? Make a statement, go to court? Because he's going to get out. He's already inside. Yeah, right. He's going to get out. And I went, yes, I am, I will. And I did that in 2019, I made a statement. It went to court. And it was only last year that I I managed to go to Penrith local court and give my victim impact statement. I was just one of five in the latest grouping of victims, which I believe totals now 18 victims that have actually stepped forward and made a complaint. So I lived with a secret for a long, long time, which has basically meant in life, use that trust word, I don't trust anyone. And that's probably impacted me in my life a lot in both good and bad ways. Yeah, yeah. But it it was just all boiling over and he pled guilty and he's still inside. But it's just, man, it's been a real mm. challenge for me. And, you know, I only, I only told my wife in when it was sort of going to court. Holy shit. And so I'm just making it more public. Like there's people in my family that have no idea. Well, my kids know, my wife knows, my brother knows. It's, and some other key close mates. But when I read about what this... I could use some really we'll use it. Um, bad language, especially because Fluff's here. But w- what this fucking asshole did to kids Jeez. aged between 10 and 16 all around that lower mountains area just sickens me, absolutely sickens me. Maybe that's why I went into policing. I don't know. Yeah. I have trouble trusting anyone 
and that's probably one of the things if we start talking about what has not gone well, mm. I would say it's my inability to trust anyone and it's just that inner feeling probably because my trust was taken away from me yeah. as a 13-year-old by this cunt. That's a that's such a massive background load for your entire life to carry. Freaking hell. Jesus. Does that does that explain a lot in your life, do you think? I think it does. I think having unpacked it more since 2018 and it became bigger than obviously Springwood Detectives. Yeah, it, yeah. it moved up into State Crime Command, yeah. you know, under sex crimes given the number of victims. Does it explain a lot? Yes. Talking about it has been of benefit but when I when I finally got the sentencing report from the judge and read in more detail what happened to the other victims I count myself lucky Jesus I count myself lucky because they were repeatedly Sexually assaulted. God. Uh, yeah. Look, I, I, I didn't know whether to say it again because, because I don't trust. But it's still a story that needs to be told. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, happy to tell it because well, you never know who it'll help. There's so many people, you know, when I'm told other close police officers, some, they've gone, oh, yeah, this is so common. Like people that work in the sexual assault investigation space. Right. That right. Whatever happened in the 70s and 80s, mate, Yeah. why the hell did all these people yeah. go around um, sexually assaulting boys? Yeah. And um, I don't know, does it still happen? Is it a different form now? I don't know. But... It happened and I'm, I was happy to get up in court and give my bit but I just yeah. gave my I gave my victim impact statement and I went to the court to do it specifically. Yeah, right. Because I wanted to look the judge in the eye and I wanted to look the, the offender in the eye, albeit via video link. But Yeah. Um, Jesus. You're going to ask me if, you know, if what, what would you think if, say to yourself as a, <laughs> Young nineteen-year-old coming into the police college. Yeah, um, it would be to try to get that trust back earlier, or have say something sooner. Yeah, right. Don't don't bottle it up, and you know, don't. I know Grant Edwards used the term "don't take things personally." Yeah, in a, in a policing sense. Yeah. But I, I just don't know why it sat buried for 35 years. Yeah. Um, you've never you've never sort of come to a 
conclusion on that? Why you? No. Why you did that? Because I mean, like obviously, you would think somebody that's in law enforcement would understand the importance of making statements, going to court, and all that sort of stuff. But you know, when things are personal, that, that you know, professional mindset's not really part of the equation, is it? Yeah. We missed the what went well. Well, clearly, what's gone well, I'm alive. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Those critical incidents didn't didn't kill me. Yeah. Um, the injury, the illness didn't kill me. I think I've been lucky to be surrounded by really good people throughout my career. Yeah, right. On different deployments, uh, working in Canberra, working nationally, working in protection operations. I've just been surrounded by good people and I've had a couple of good leaders. Right. So. That have opened up those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say the opportunity and the adventure that, 36 years in the AFP has given me has been certainly a bonus. Yeah. But equally, the flip side is that it has taken a massive toll yeah. on my family. Yeah. And you. And me. Yeah. You know, to to the point, that on April 11 this year, my daughter tried to kill herself by driving a car into a pole at 100 k's an hour. Jesus Christ. God. Jesus. She survived. Sorry, man. Oh, God. For the sake of the listener, I've just shown Matt a photo of a Suzuki Swift, or what was once a Suzuki Swift, which is my daughter's car after it was driven into a light pole on April 11 this year. Bloody hell, man. How do you... That's yeah. the toll of, in my opinion, me spending 36 years in law enforcement, applying the service above self, duty first model. And as Janine says on this, we've got to, we've got to care for the families. Yeah. And the families. That's it. Are a massive part. Of yep. this first responder, yeah, emergency worker community. I was going to ask you what motivates you to be here, but I think you've answered it. Yeah, the cause, and this walk is is critical. Yeah, we've, we've got to do better. Yeah, 
We've got to make it better. I often use the term, don't count the days, make the days count. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to the, my Dalai Lama thinkings is just be kind, mm-hmm. be grateful, be positive. And that photo that Bats took only two days ago. Yeah. In Lockhart, in the cafe, live, yeah. love, laugh, sing, dance, dream, play, give, smile and cherish. Yeah. All those things. So, yeah. Yeah. That's what it's about. That's what it needs to be about. <laughs> Mate. Sorry to throw that at you. No. I, I, I mean, I'm, uh, again, I can't believe I'm that privileged to let you share that. Um, you know, I, I, I still pinch myself wondering how on earth I became here uh, with the people that I'm with and being able to do this stuff that I'm doing. And um, I don't know what it is, but um, uh, I just remember looking back at podcasts when I was really crook and how much help I got out of them. And to be able to put that back into this platform, um, I don't know. I've got to say, having you doing these podcasts out on this track, on this walk, I have played many of them over and over. In the, on the Udna Data track, I've just downloaded them all. Mm. And when I'm driving the Escort car, I'll just play the podcast on speaker. Yeah. And listen to these amazing humans. Yeah. That you have had this great privilege of speaking with. Yeah. And the, it's just sensational. It is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I, 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 and you're one of them, you know, and that's why I pinch myself going, how did this happen? Um, I don't know why, but it is. So I'm going to roll with it. You better tell me a song. So I thought about it over a period of time. In the tactical world or in close quarter tactics, when you're moving through, um, we use the term with me, with you. Yeah. So before you make entry or whatever it is, you know, someone's calling with me, the response is with you. Yeah. So the song that I have suggested or would like to nominate is Are You With Me by the Pot Bellies. Are you with me? And it's all about being together, being united for a common cause. If you look at the lyrics of that song, they can apply to this walk. Yeah, right. Completely. It's about uniting together to achieve a cause. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Heart to Heart Walk is about. Yeah. And it's a good tune. I used to play it out running when I was training for a marathon. Okay. So it's one of that. It's got a really good piano beat to it. Yeah, right. It's pretty funky. It's from the sort of late 2000s, but... Cool. Yeah, add it to the list, man. It's on the list. Man, I, thank you. Um, this is a powerful one. And, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing everything. No worries, mate. Thank you. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. 
Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.